following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org backslash university. Hello, my name is Jennifer Robles and I'm an assistant professor of urology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I specialize in endourology and robotic surgery and I'm the chief of urology and surgical quality officer at the Tennessee Valley VA Healthcare System. I'm a member of the AUA Quality Improvement and Patient Safety Committee and was the lead author of our recent white paper on post-operative opioid prescribing. It is my pleasure to introduce the panelists who will be joining me in discussion today. Dr. Abraham specializes in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. She is an associate professor and residency program director at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx. Dr. Offenberg is a urologic oncologist at Urology of St. Louis and serves as co-director of the Urology of St. Louis Cancer Institute. He is also currently the chair-elect of the AUA Quality Improvement and Patient Safety Committee. Dr. Brummett is a professor of anesthesiology and the senior associate chair for research at the University of Michigan. He is a co-director of Michigan's opioid prescribing engagement network known as OPEN. And lastly, Dr. Sternberg specializes in endourology. He is an associate professor and director of urologic research at the University of Vermont Medical Center. He is also a member of the AUA Quality Improvement and Patient Safety Committee. We have a few learning objectives to review. After participating in this activity, learners will be able to identify at least one non-pharmaceutical method they can practically implement to manage postoperative pain and reduce postoperative opioid prescribing, and discuss multimodal pain control and identify at least two non-opioid medications which can be used to manage postoperative pain and reduce postoperative opioid prescribing. So to begin, I'd like to thank everyone for joining us today to discuss controversies, confusion, and the future of urologic postoperative opioid prescribing reduction strategies. Our goal today is to have a pragmatic conversation and expand upon topics covered in the recently released AUA white paper on the rationale and strategies to reduce postoperative opioid prescribing. We originally began working on this paper back in 2019 because we were all very aware of the opioid crisis, but felt that there was a need for practical guidance about exactly why and how we should improve opioid prescribing in routine urologic practice. This topic is more important than ever as the US opioid crisis has worsened during the pandemic. And in 2021, the Centers for Disease Control reported a new record number of overdose deaths. But the work on this topic within the Quality Improvement and Patient Safety Committee did not begin in 2019. It was first inspired by the 2018 AUA Quality Improvement Summit, which was focused on opioid stewardship and urology. With us today is the co-chair of this summit and the chair-elect of the Quality Improvement and Patient Safety Committee, Dr. Offenberg. Could you please give us a bit of background on what led to the choice of this topic for the summit and what were its original goals? Sure, thank you. And thanks for the opportunity to be here with all of you. So um, as Dr. Robles was saying, of course, we've all recognized increasingly the impact of uh, the opioid crisis on our patients and our population at large. Uh, as we plan for the 2018 summit, I would say the conversation began really in 2016, 2017 within the Quality Improvement Patient Safety Committee, recognizing the increasing awareness within perioperative care of the potential impact of uh, opioid prescriptions and you know, chronic opioid use. Uh, there were several important publications that started coming out in 2014, 15, 16 that started to shed light on the fact that perioperative care may actually play a very important role in being several sentinel events that may actually be somewhat perpetuating issues with the opioid crisis. So the inspiration of the summit was to try and consolidate some of that knowledge in a relatively rapid manner to bring experts in that could share their expertise with the urology population at large and start to uh, have important conversations about how we could potentially change our care within urology to hopefully do better by our patients. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's helpful to have a little bit of background and 
I can say from personal experience that I think the summit really encouraged a lot of urologists to question how they managed postoperative pain. And I hope that today's discussion can provide some answers to common concerns that have come up about this topic. So I wanna begin by talking with our urologist panelists. When you look back at your prescribing practices 10 or 15 years ago compared to now, what has changed? Specifically, were there any barriers or challenges that you had to overcome to make these changes? And uh, we're gonna start with Dr. Offenberg. I would say a, a tremendous amount has changed in the last 10 to 15 years, truthfully. I, I would say if I go back to that, that phase of my career, which was when I was in training, uh, I think there was relatively limited amount of knowledge that was shared in terms of best practices for opioid prescribing. I, I think the spotlight really hadn't been shed on the potential downstream consequences of, of not paying a whole lot of attention to this. I, I felt in my training a, a lot of the lessons I learned about prescribing were largely focused on pain control and some of the somewhat now debunked thoughts that, you know, perioperative pain management strategies using opioids really couldn't lead to any downstream consequences. So I felt like there was a somewhat limited, a lacking amount of training that I had, and some of it was self-education or education through conversations with great colleagues that got me thinking about how to change my practice. As I moved to implement this, I think like anything in medicine, it was a, it's a cultural change both for me and also for our colleagues. And I think uh, as a result, if there are any roadblocks, I think they've all just come through you know, the need to kind of change and some of the inertia of the practices that we all have and have been trained on. So it requires some conversations, a bit of forethought and just dedicated focus on making sure uh, not just myself as a physician, but also those I'm working with kind of understand why we're doing this and uh, but also empowering myself and others with with real tools to have an alternative strategy, not just no strategy. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Sternberg, what about you? How has your practice changed and did you experience any barriers or challenges? Thank you. Um, so I would echo what Dr. Offberg said back when we were training, there really was very little knowledge of the downstream effects of opioids. And really the main goal was, you know, making sure patients' pain was well controlled and patients were content after their, their operations. And um, so, um, you know, I, I specifically remember for every case writing, you know, hydrocodone, acetaminophen, and writing 30 tabs, and we would even write 30 in parentheses because, you know, God forbid they would put an extra zero in there because 30 was fine, but you know, 300. So just sort of like um, what Dr. Offenberg said, just kind of learning and hearing and seeing more and more about, A, the downstream effects of opioids, and B, the alternatives that we can use. Um, we kind of hit a point in practice, and again, I'll specify that my practice is mostly endourology. So I thought this was a very uh, ideal setting to say, you know what, let's really try to avoid opioids and use alternatives, specifically NSAIDs, which had been shown to be uh, equally, if not you know, more effective at times for that type of discomfort. So we, uh, you know, we kind of hit a day, we said, let's stop. And um, it's been about five and a half years now at UVM. And uh, we switched over to diclofenac and we used adjuncts that we'll talk about later in terms of stent discomfort and um, you know really uh, you know we did this kind of in two stages the first stage we still were giving opioids to patients who had allergies to NSAIDs or had compromised renal function uh, and then we even said you know what let's just try with everyone uh, and even those patients we would just use acetaminophen um, you know tamsulosin and the other adjuncts and honestly uh, it may sound surprising but I really didn't have too many roadblocks most patients did very well. Of course, there were some, you know, blips in the road, but um, really it's been very successful and, you know, our trainees wouldn't consider doing anything different at this point. Uh, thank you. Dr. Abraham, have you had a similar experience? Oh, yes. Very similar story in my FPMRS practice. Um, so years ago, I was routinely prescribing 20 to 25 uh, tablets of oxycodone and just thought that was the norm. People have, would have pain after surgery and I had to give them something. And as the um, awareness started increasing about the risks of uh, opioids and long-term use, we actually looked at our own practice and called people 30 days after surgery to see how many opioid tablets they actually used. 
And we were shocked to find out that 30% of my patients didn't even fill the prescription or didn't even take one tablet. And here I was routinely prescribing them to everyone. So that initiated the process of really uh, rethinking our approach to post-operative pain. And we started uh, decreasing uh, to maximum make five tablets of oxycodone for some of the pelvic reconstruction surgeries that I do. And so far it's gone well. We thought maybe people would be asking for a lot more refills, but the refill requests haven't gone up dramatically. Um, it's about 7% in my own practice. Um, and if there has been any barrier, it's been just educating everyone, educating all the trainees, the residents, the fellows who, who are uh, writing these prescriptions, even the mid-levels, my nurse practitioners, getting everyone on the same page that um, it's okay to prescribe less and our patients are still doing okay post-operatively. Thank you, I think that's super helpful. Um, one barrier that hasn't been mentioned but that I've heard from many other people um, to reducing post-operative opioid prescribing is that sometimes uh, multimodal therapies can seem complicated. You know, people think that it involves lots of different medications or interventions. And in contrast, I mean, whatever you think about it, prescribing, you know, 30 opioid pills after every surgery is, is super easy. <laughs> um, so later we're going to try to sort of demystify uh, multimodal uh, non-opioid medications to show that it can be pretty simple. Uh, but I think there are some basic things urologists can do, which can still have a big impact on reducing prescribing. So I'd like to open this up to the panel, to the full panel. If you had to pick just one piece of advice to give urologists, what is the one easy thing you can think um, any urologist can do to safely reduce their opioid prescribing. And we're going to start with a person we haven't heard from yet, Dr. Brummett. Thanks. I think one of the easiest things to do is just educate your patients and really set those expectations. You know, surgery hurts. There's going to be an expected recovery. But, you know, helping patients understand that recovery and educating them and preparing them might be the most powerful thing. Uh, I run a, a collaborative, the Opioid Prescribing Engagement Network. If you go to michigan-open.org, apparently give thumbs up now automatically. Um, the, if you go to michigan-open.org, you can find those free materials and you can actually personalize them for your websites. I mean, for your own practice. So you send us a high resolution logo and there's a lot of good information there to help counsel patients. And then I'll also give a plug for the music collaborative here in, in Michigan. Urology Collaborative has done a tremendous job of changing opioid prescribing throughout the state, reducing prescribing for um, prostatectomy down to about six pills at the state level and now really going to zero in, in a lot of cases. Um, and, and they have free educational uh, educational materials there as well that can be downloaded. Thank you. We're gonna go in reverse order. Dr. Abraham, what are your thoughts? Oh, I'm gonna echo about the patient education. So right before we go into the OR, I, I review um, how that they are gonna have pain the first day is the worst and each day gets better. And actually um, it's been studied in humorous literature that you know, on a, on a scale of zero to 10, your pain will be around five the first day, but by the end of that first week, it's down to two to three. So at least patients know that, okay, the first day will be work, will be the worst and they, there's a light at the end of the tunnel and they have some idea of when that pain is gonna decrease. So yeah, that, I think that pre-op education definitely helps. And Dr. Brummett mentioned those resources. We actually uh, tried uh, copied some of those images and put it in, into dot phrases so that we can paste it into our discharge paperwork. So the paperwork that the nurses are printing will have some of that uh, educational material on uh, non-opioid alternatives for pain control. So take advantage of those. That's an awesome suggestion. Uh, Dr. Sternberg, your thoughts? Well, I'm hoping that being repetitive will um, really drill on the point, but uh, it really does come down to patient education and expectation setting, which I think can be difficult in our really busy practices. And, you know, in addition to what Dr. Abraham does, you know, preoperatively, um, you know, taking the time in the office, um, I'll, I'll do that consistently and really sit down with the patients and go over, you know, for my surgeries in specific, what are the expected symptoms, what, um, what is and is not something that should be alarming, when to call us. Um, and then really, I, I bring up the fact that, you know, there's very good literature now that shows that just by using 
you know, non-steroidal medications and other um, adjuncts that we really can treat your discomfort as well, if not better than using opioids with less side effects. So I think that taking that time to know what to expect and what we're going to be using and that we are consciously trying to avoid not getting opioids, although, of course, if they're needed, you know, I always tell them that that's an option. Um, but I think that that's the, the main thing that I do in advance. Absolutely. And I think we've heard from multiple people now that, you know, these conversations are important, but also if you're worried about time that these conversations can take, there's things you can do like dot phrases in your EMR, patient handouts, and so on, uh, many of which are available online, like Dr. Brummett talked about, um, that can make it really easy to communicate, you know, this information to your patients and set these pre-op expectations without adding a ton of time to your, to your patient visits. Uh, Dr. Offenberg, what are your thoughts about uh, one easy piece of advice for urologists um, to safely reduce their opioid prescribing? So I wholeheartedly agree with the rest of the group that sort of having a plan and educating patients is very important. And that's probably priority number one. But beyond that, you know, I think for the urologist that's looking to sort of step a toe into the water in this area, I'd say a piece of advice I'd have is, you know, start small. Uh, if you're nervous about how to do this, you don't necessarily have to, you know, sweep across your entire practice in one day and completely change. I would start with maybe one or two procedures that you feel, you know, perhaps would be, you know, on the easier end of the spectrum for you to try and change your practice and, and at least start by seeing, you know, how far can you reduce your opioids and talk to the patients and they're going those procedures, come up with a strategy and implement it. And, and then truthfully, I think as Dr. Abraham alluded to, then ask the patients how it went. I found in my practice, it's been a truly shocking how few patients feel they need pain, the opioid pain medications, especially when empowered with a plan or an alternative. Um, so, and I think there's a lot of comfort in then hearing your patients come back and saying, no, I, I was okay. And, and I hope as you implement this in your practice, it will then reassure you that what you're doing is not leaving your patients in a bind, but it's in fact, you know, helping them receive even better care. So I would start small, pick a small, several, one or several procedures, follow up on how it's going, and then kind of broaden your, your scope as you get more comfortable with this practice pattern. I think that's great advice. Thank you. Um, we're going to switch gears a little bit uh, to talk about the complicated topic of multimodal pain medication. Um, I found that, you know, there's a, a lot that's been put out in the literature now um, about managing pain with non-opioid medications, um, but often the details, the sort of nitty-gritty details of how you do it are, are not included, and that results, uh, I think, in a lot of confusion and some controversy uh, for folks. One of the goals of our white paper was to be more granular about what the common multimodal options are and specifically how to prescribe them. And so today I want to have a little bit more in-depth conversation about that. Um, and we're gonna start with uh, one of the most polarizing and probably controversial uh, drugs that many turn to in order to reduce opioid prescribing. And that is tramadol. And we're gonna start with uh, Dr. Brummett. Uh, in your opinion, is tramadol safer to use uh, instead of you know, so-called real opioids like oxycodone or hydrocodone? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so tramadol is not my favorite drug. In fact, I very seldom use it. I, the only times I ever prescribe it are when somebody's already on it, they're chronically using it, and they've demonstrated that it's fine. And even there, I struggle. Um, it is not necessarily a safer opioid. I think there's been this misperception. And we need to remember that in other parts of the world, there are, tram there are patients addicted to tramadol. Uh, I've interacted personally with people here in the US whose first drug uh, before they moved on to heroin was tramadol. Uh, uh, David Yearling from Talks and the Hound does a really great um, uh, podcast. Uh, he has a really great website called Talks and the Hound, and he's got one called Tramadone. And so Tramadone, um, the reason he says it is because it's, you know, Tramadol is like if uh, Codeine and Prozac had a baby. Like that's what you should think about if, if you're thinking about Tramadol, because in the end, it's a really weak um, you opioid receptor, it, it really it does almost nothing as an opioid. It's like giving an antidepressant like venlafaxine, the serotonin, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. And then it has to be metabolized to have any opioidergic effects. About 20% of, of Caucasians in the US don't metabolize that at all. So basically all you're giving them is an antidepressant, which has potential for uh, complications with other drugs. Uh, anything that is potentially going to affect 
their liver metabolism. So the CYP2, uh, the, C, the CYP2D6 or the um, P450 system can affect the efficacy of the drug, both in terms of ramping it up and making it like getting an, an IV slug all the way to making it not work at all. And we know about 2% of the population and up to 8% of, of mid, the people of Middle Eastern background are ultra rapid metabolizers, meaning that when they get it, they get a tremendous high and then probably also tremendous crash. And so in the end, it's a dirty drug and not my favorite. If you're going to use an opioid, use an opioid and use a, a pure mu agonist uh, without all of the dirty side effects. Thank you. And we will try to um, have links to some more information about that in that website that Dr. Brummett mentioned on our uh, webinar site. Um, so now I want to talk about one of the main scenes of mainstays of multimodal therapy, uh, but one that surgeons have most apprehension about probably, which is non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs. Uh, NSAIDs have been shown to be highly effective for acute surgical pain, especially in combination with acetaminophen. But there are many NSAIDs to choose from, and many surgeons worry about potential risks from using them, including bleeding, acute kidney injury, et cetera. And so my question for the panel is, how do you use NSAIDs in your practice? Uh, do you schedule them or you use them PRN? And which NSAIDs do you routinely use? And do you have any concerns about risks from NSAIDs? We will start with uh, Dr. Abraham. I use NSAIDs a lot in my practice. Uh, so intraoperative, intraoperatively, I'll talk to anesthesia and we'll talk about giving Pitorolac IV during the case. Uh, then postoperatively, um, I advise my patients to take um, ibuprofen and acetaminophen every uh, eight hours for the first three days, and then to just use opioids for breakthrough pain. So I tell them to stay ahead of the pain the first three days because some of the pelvic reconstructive surgeries I do can be very uncomfortable, and so I want them to stay ahead of the pain by taking it standing. Um, I haven't... Ha uh, had any issues with, with bleeding, uh, increased bleeding because of using NSAIDs. Uh, I, I do advise people to take their NSAIDs with food. Um, and then uh, I, I don't frequently have many patients with um, CKD. So I haven't run into that problem of not being able to give NSAIDs or worrying about that so much. But so far that regimen of giving it standing postoperatively has worked. And serve, I missed it. Do you do over-the-counter NSAIDs or prescription NSAIDs? Routinely, it's usually just ibuprofen. I do prescribe it because sometimes my patients will get it covered when it is uh, prescribed, and then they don't have to pay the over-the-counter cost. So I do give a prescription regardless. Um, but if they already have it at home, then um, they can take what they have at home. And then I have had, just recently, I had a patient that told me, oh, acetaminophen, that's like water to me, or ibuprofen, it's just like water to me. And so I gave her Ketorolec PO, or oral Ketorolec prescription, and, and that worked great for her pain. <laughs> uh, Dr. Brummett, in your opinion, should urologists be concerned uh, about the risks of NSAIDs in terms of specifically in terms of things like AKI or cardiovascular risks? So I, I think there are people with se severe risks that you have to be conscious of, but for the most part, most of the risks and most of the morbidity associated with um, non-steroidals are all based on long-term use. And I think that's an important piece. I, I will say for someone out there who's junior and interested in a research career, there is a, a body of research needed around um, acute care morbidity um, I, my, our sense is it's low. Um, you're always running a risk benefit and there's, there's always a balance anytime you're giving a patient anything. I think for the vast majority of patients, a short course of non-steroidals is, is really very acceptable and actually one of the most powerful things you can do to reduce opioids and really honestly to improve a patient's pain. They're, they're probably better analgesics for most of the pain you're treating postoperatively. Thank you. Dr. Offenberg, what about your practice and NSAIDs? So I think my practice is very similar to the group. I use a lot of NSAIDs, obviously doing uh, major oncologic surgery. I tend to have, uh, you know, probably a slightly larger proportion of my patients that are inpatients. And unless there's a major contraindication, I would say nearly every one of my patients hits the floor with a scheduled Ketorolactose. 
I usually start slow or lower. I start at 15 milligrams for most patients. I, you know, I find in a lot of hospitals, the default dose is 30. Somewhat anecdote here, but I haven't really found a major difference between 15 and 30 and how the patients do. And it's kind of nice that you have a little room to go up if the patient feels like they're not totally controlled at 15. I've found many times where I say, okay, well, we'll go up to 30. And then they're doing just fine without any uh, major consequences. So I start there, um, you know, for transition, either of an inpatient to the outpatient setting or an outpatient surgical procedure. Similar to Dr. Abraham, I use a lot of PO NSAIDs. I similarly tell patients to schedule them uh, for the first few days in their recovery. And I will also have them schedule acetaminophen. I do tell patients as they start to kind of taper down, I tell them to taper down the NSAIDs first and keep the acetaminophen scheduled, um, perhaps to kind of reduce some of the, you know, rare but potential consequences on renal function and things like peptic ulcer disease that can come from NSAIDs. Um, but in general, I would say I've found even in major renal surgery, if a person goes in with a relatively normal GFR, uh, I can't say I felt there's been a major impact on post-operative renal function. I think that's been a, a specific population where I think people have really shied away from NSAIDs. Um, you know, if a patient goes in with a, a marginal or even poor GFR, you know, that is certainly a patient like Dr. Brummett alludes to that, you know, I would not hit them with high doses of NSAIDs. And that's a patient I may be a little more likely to use opioids in. But outside of that circumstance or a, a patient that's got some other major medical uh, contraindication, I use them in nearly everybody. Uh, and so it's IV Ketorolac as an inpatient, usually transitioning to the outpatient. I do use PO Ketorolac some, but also find, you know, scheduling ibuprofen uh, works with similar efficacy in my hands. Um, it just happens to be a little bit more, a few more pills, except you can get the prescription pills at a higher, uh, obviously higher formulations than the over-the-counter. Thank you. And I'd like to echo that. I mean, where I trained uh, our robotic partial nephrectomies, unless they had horrible renal function, 100% got scheduled Ketorolac as an inpatient. Uh, and we really never saw an issue with that. And so I've continued that practice myself and have experienced really good uh, benefits from it. Good pain control with the patients, no real issues. Dr. Sternberg from an endourology practice, are you incorporating NSAIDs as well? And do you use Ketorolac too? Yes. So most of my cases are outpatient cases, but yeah, even with the inpatient cases, I think NSAIDs remain the mainstay um, treatment here for post-operative symptoms. I don't necessarily schedule because <clears throat> I think that stent discomfort is so variable. Um, so some people really don't have symptoms at all and some really are terribly bothered. So I do it more on an as-needed basis. And for whatever reason, and maybe it was just me looking in the, the European literature and things, it, it's that we started using diclofenac. Um, and that's been my PO NSAID of choice. Um, we use it as 50 milligrams twice a day. Again, uh, we do that as needed. And we combine that with acetaminophen and then with the uh, other stent-related adjuncts. So we use tamsulosin, and we'll use an anticholinergic potentially, um, and we'll even use uh, phenazopyridine. Um, <clears throat> but in general, uh, that's what we do <clears throat> uh, postoperatively. And then we will give almost routinely IV ketorolac, um, and we tend to give it towards the end of the case. And we're still always asked by our anesthesia colleagues whether we can give it, and we're concerned about bleeding and things like that. But uh, I think to echo what everyone else says, I, I've seen very few complications in terms of bleeding, bleeding even after percutaneous surgeries. Um, so those are my two mainstays. Thank you, everyone. Um, nowadays, a lot of multimodal uh, therapies and protocols incorporate a drug called gabapentin, uh, which is a drug for that was originally developed uh, as an anti-seizure drug and is now used for neuropathic pain. And prior to the opioid crisis, I think was pretty unfamiliar to most urologists. So first, I just want to do a quick show of hands. Who here in this group uses gabapentin in their institutional protocols for post-operative pain? All right, a couple of us. Um, 
there seems to be some mixed data about its effectiveness. And you can kind of see that in our group that we have mixed responses about how many of us use gabapentin. Um, Dr. Brummett, could you give us some, you know, kind of updated information about the current state of gabapentin and acute pain uh, control? Sure. First of all, I should say I should sort of half raise my hand because we do have protocols at the University of Michigan that includes gabapentin, gabapentinoids as part of the protocol. And I actually don't, uh, there's no judgment here because really I think the literature um, against the regular routine use of gabapentin is, is very new. There's a really nice meta-analysis done in 2020 published in anesthesiology by Barrett. Um, I think it's a really well-conducted meta-analysis that looked at both acute pain acute to chronic pain, the development of chronic pain, and uh, looked at different dosing strategies. And I know some people use a single dose, some people use repeated doses. And unfortunately, when, when gabapentin is given as a part of a routine multimodal pathway, it just doesn't show much, it, much if it, it really any clinically significant impact on, on pain control. Um, and I think it's important to remember this is about clinical significance. And, I, and what I would say is that if you are, if you're gonna compare opioids to opioids plus gabapentin, and you're not using non-steroidals, you're avoiding acetaminophen, you know, you're not doing the simple things, then yeah, gabapentin is going to have an effect. But in a, in a modern day multimodal pathway, one plus one plus one doesn't always equal three, right? And I think really what you're getting right now is like one plus one plus one equals 2.05, right? You're, you're getting almost nothing out of adding that gabapentin. And so um, now I, I will say I'm a chronic pain physician. I use gabapentin in my practice. And we also use gabapentin on the acute pain service because I think that there is something to be said about our, our, our poor understanding still today of precision medicine and precision prescribing. And there are certain phenotypes, people with widespread body pain, people that might look more like fibromyalgia patients, or those um, potentially even those chronic opioid users or longstanding chronic pain patients that may be more likely to benefit from gabapentinoids. And so this is where I think you, you rely on a, a pain consultation or another or your inpatient pain service if you have that service. And if not, you know, I, I think the reality is, is that it doesn't need to be a part of your routine, everyday multimodal practice. Thank you. I think that's really helpful. That helps me define my practice and how we use gabapentin going forward. As you said, you know, the literature on this is still evolving since the use of gabapentin in this, uh, for this reason is relatively new. Uh, I kind of want to just summarize what we've talked about so far with multimodal therapies that essentially it seems like simple protocols, acetaminophen and NSAIDs will cover most patients' pain uh, for most procedures. You don't need to get fancy with drugs like gabapentin um, or anything else uh, to have good baseline pain control. But that said, there are certainly potential adjuncts that we all uh, use at different times that may be helpful depending on your patient population. Dr. Abraham, have you found that there are any additional adjuncts or blocks or anything like that that you found useful? Yeah, so uh, one of the surgeries that I do is a, a sacrospinous ligament fixation for prolapse. And uh, my patients frequently have a lot of right-sided gluteal pain because I'm placing the stitches near um, near sacral nerve roots or the uh, pudendal nerve in that area. So I will do a pudendal nerve block to try to um, ameliorate postoperative pain since it's particularly painful due to the um, where the stitches are placed in, in the surgery. Um, something else that I didn't mention before is after pelvic reconstruction surgery, a lot of my patients are very constipated and will have pain due to constipation. So I also talk to them about a good bowel regimen afterwards so that not, they're not taking more opioids to treat their pain due to constipation. Um, if some of my patients are going home with a catheter because they've had a bladder reconstruction or urethral reconstruction, they may have bladder spasms. And again, I tell them that they should be taking their antimuscarinic for bladder spasm, not opioids. So those are some other things that um, I'll counsel patients. Dr. Sternberg, what do you use uh, for scent pain? Do you have a cocktail that you give patients? Yes, the cocktail. So I don't have a generic that everyone gets the same thing every time. I try to gather what their symptoms have been, um, get their baseline voiding habits if they've had stents before in the past. But I do use the standard adjuncts that have been shown to be effective. So I, I standard uh, use uh, tamsulosin 
I'll have them uh, take that once a day. That has been shown to help with stent discomfort. Um, for patients who are having more lower, uh, you know, bladder irritative symptoms, frequency and urgency, uh, those can be quite uh, significant with stents. So those patients will uh, will use anticholinergics. Um, there's really no good data on uh, phenazepyridine, but I tend to use it. Um, I think that patients, you know, will give a few doses of it at least. And I feel like that, you know, um, sort of numbing of the, the bladder when they're voiding tends to help. But again, that's anecdotal. Um, and then the, uh, the other, um, you know, generic stuff that we've already been talking about. But those are my main adjuncts that I use for, for stent discomfort. I use all of those as well. And so does I think everyone else in our group practice. I wanna throw in that there's also really good evidence for using belladonna opium suppositories at the, either at the beginning or the end of any sort of endourologic case, whether that's placing a stent, ureteroscopy, TURBT, anything you think there's gonna be lateral activity, there's a good prospective randomized trial that showed benefit from it. So we've incorporated that and I think it's had a really big impact on patients and making sure that they don't get behind on their pain initially right there in PACU when they wake that's up. That's a great point. I think that that's something I should consider incorporating more into my practice. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Offenberg, is there anything that you use or do you keep it simple? Uh, I would say I, especially for major, you know, oncologic open surgeries, I am a huge fan of partnering with our acute pain service for, you know, the whatever block or other sort of, um, you know, local anesthetic options may be best suited for the surgical location we're working in. I'm a big fan of thoracic epidurals for, you know, major laparotomies or subcostal work. Um, we, in some of our public work uh, at an institution I previously worked at, we very commonly would use actually tap uh, infusion catheters that would be on a pump for a few days. Uh, I found in various hospitals sort of the tools that the, the pain service has or tends to most commonly rely on may vary a little bit by local, local practice. And that's where those conversations with sort of what their um, strategies that they're most comfortable with are, and as a result, being somewhat flexible to kind of partner with them and have conversations about what is best suited. But I find, um, you know, many of the, you know, local anesthetic adjuncts or the, the catheter infusions uh, are a huge help uh, to try and reduce overall pain requirements as you think about another mechanism to come after their pain. Uh, so I do a lot of that for inpatient and on the outpatient front. I think I'd echo most of what everyone else is saying as well by just adding, you know, adjuncts where appropriate that have some evidence to support their use, whether it's for stent discomfort or bladder discomfort, things like that. So. Thank you. I think that was a really useful conversation. While I think that we can all agree that many patients do very well with non-opioid-based multimodal medications, they don't work for everyone. We all know this. Some patients can't take them because of allergies or because of contraindications or because they have chronic pain and need something stronger. So I think there's perpetually interest amongst everyone in new alternatives for post-operative pain control. Dr. Brummett, is there anything coming down the pipeline that you can share with us that you think is promising for acute pain management? And on the flip side, is there anything that's out right now or coming that you think is overhyped for this area? Yeah, thanks. I'll name a few things. And I'll, I'll first, uh, I know our disclosures are out there, but I, I will acknowledge that I, I consult for a company that makes a long-acting local anesthetic. I think there are a couple of long-acting local anesthetics that have actually gone through the process of comparing themselves, not just to placebo, but to bupivacaine and seem to show efficacy. And I, I'm excited about those medications as potential options to actually get a longer-acting local anesthetic. Really, if you look back at it, the last innovation in local anesthetics was probably ropivacaine until these new drugs came out, right? Because really we haven't had other than adding things to drugs and adding um, additives we really haven't done much with respect to long-acting local anesthetics I, I'm excited about that there are other things that I think are more technical that will really probably be more in the hands of an acute pain service I'm sure surgeons will pick these up and try to use them but things like um, cryoablation I think is interesting uh, largely the the limitation of cryoablation in the past has been the, the size of the machine and the complexity of the machine and the breaking of the machine. But the idea of creating a, a short-term um, 
uh, ablation of, of a sensory nerve, and you know, really thinking about sensory nerves, it is attractive in terms of providing a prolonged uh, relief. And I, Brian Ilfeld, uh, again, I'm, I'm going to plug a bunch of anesthesiology articles because he, Brian, a lot we, we do publish a lot of great uh, acute pain literature in in the, in the journal of an, uh, in anesthesiology. I think it's a great journal. And Brian Ilfeld's written a really nice review of both cryoablation and then another one about peripheral nerve stimulation. And there's a lot of new peripheral nerve stimulators. Uh, this is something that our, as a chronic pain physician, we've been doing stimulation for a long time. It started out as spinal cord stimulation and then moved to peripheral nerve stimulation. Some of these new stimulators are great because actually um, you don't have to be super technical. When you're far from the nerve, you can actually get a good um, good block and it's nice. They're percutaneous. They stay in for a period of time and then they come out. They go in with a temporary battery and they come out. So I think these are interesting things. How they apply to urology, I think, is, is still to be determined. And I think we need more efficacy data out there. But I, I'm excited about those those uh, those products, and I continue to see more and more work that comes out. I think on the overhype side, again, we talked about long-acting local anesthetics. I, I believe that in the surgical community in particular, liposomal bupivacaine is still overhyped. I believe that there are a lot of surgeons out there who still believe in and use liposomal bupivacaine and believe it provides additional efficacy. Based on my review of the literature, and I'll say that strongly, and again, acknowledging my conflict of interest by working with this other company, but acknowledging that my, my bias, my, my concern about liposomal bupivacaine is, is based on the, the review of the literature Two really good uh, meta-analysis. There's a meta-analysis uh, in anesthesiology and then a narrative review. And I think an important figure is both came to the same conclusion that there's really just not evidence that liposomal bupivacaine provides a clinically significant improvement in pain or a clinically significant reduction in opioid use. You're just not getting anything other than probably a much bigger bill. Like it's an expensive drug when compared to bupivacaine. And, and so I, I'm concerned about that. And, and you know, we, we, uh, I'm, I'm glad we can finally talk about it because there was a, a, a libel lawsuit against the society and against the individual authors of the journals and the editor of the journal that was just dismissed. So the, the company actually sued the journal and the editors and the authors based on this review of the literature, a, a really well-conducted review. So I would encourage all surgeons to go and read those articles and we'll put them in um, because I, I think they're pretty convincing. And I, I hope that, um, that maybe that there's additional attention on these articles because of this back and forth. And I think that's it in terms of things that are kind of out there. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. I find that fascinating. I mean, like I said, all of us certainly here on this panel, but I think many, many urologists out there and all the users of liposomal bupivacaine, you know, are looking for another option. So I think it's really helpful to hear about this. Things like peripheral nerve stimulators are very, the concept is super familiar to us. We use things like that in urology already in terms of interstim um, and other sorts of peripheral nerve stimulation. So I think that's particularly kind of attractive from a urology standpoint. Um, the problem that we currently face is that we don't have those therapies out there. And so for patients that are more complex, particularly the opioid tolerant patient, patients that are on chronic opioids, many people find managing their postoperative pain to be a pretty big challenge, especially if you're trying to keep be mindful of opioid use in those patients. And I think there's thus a lot of questions out there in the community about how to handle these patients especially if you're in a smaller center where you can't just consult your local pain service or even a big center, you know, on a preoperative side, sometimes there can be a multi-month wait to get someone into a pain clinic if you're trying to do that. So for our final question, I wanted to ask everyone in the group about what your approach is or opinion is on managing these complex patients beyond consulting the pain service. Is there anything that you think is important to, to working these patients up preoperatively or handling them postoperatively? Uh, and, uh, and let's see, we're going to start with Dr. Sternberg. How do you manage these patients? So again, this is my patient population, mostly on an outpatient basis. Um, and so it starts again with a very open conversation about their, their pain and understanding their prior, um, use of these medications and where they're at sort of with that. So certainly I'm happy to prescribe these for patients who we have that open conversation with and they can get a short uh, course of opioids. But what I really stress here is that this is where we really have to remember that medicine is a team sport. 
Um, and reaching out, taking the time to reach out to the primary care providers, uh, you know, who really know the patient on multiple levels and can sort of quarterback the, the pain management with you is really important. So you're not mixing messages. Um, so I think getting that conversation going and having a plan with, with the primary care physician uh, is really sort of the, the most important thing that I do. Thank you. Dr. Abraham, what do you think is important? Yes, yeah, similarly, so we have kind of a big system, so it's really hard to get someone on the phone, but even just sending a message to whoever's already prescribing or managing the pain for this uh, patient, just giving them notice that this patient's going to have surgery, what uh, specific recommendations do you have for me, uh, and Otherwise, I manage my patients the same way, do the, prescribe the same amount of opioids that I normally would. And if I need to give a refill, then I'll provide a refill. It's just so much easier to provide refills now when, because it's electronic. So, um, so it, it hasn't changed my practice too much. Just letting, letting the um, pain management specialist or the PCP know that they're having surgery and then doing what I routinely do, giving refills as needed. Dr. Offenberg, what about you? I would agree with pretty much all of that. And I, I would say also, um, you know, I have a conversation with the patient that comes in with prior opioid use about, you know, our plans and how, you know, I'm going to try to manage them in a similar manner to all of my other patients with the caveat that I will usually continue baseline opioids, you know, at their home dosing. Um, for a lot of reasons, um, but one, just so we're not dealing with a withdrawal type event in the post-operative period. So I'll continue those. I also, both personally and to the patient, recognize they may be a patient that has a slightly higher probability of getting, you know, a few added opioid doses compared to a patient that doesn't have some prior opioid tolerance. Um, the other thing I will often tell them, especially with the major inpatient surgeries, is and Dr. Brummett maybe could speak to this too. You know, I find those patients can be a little harder to kind of find the right spot for pain control because, uh, you know, at a patient level, I think they, they're sort of can sometimes have kind of a hyperalgesic response uh, and that can be somewhat unpredictable how significant it is. And so in all of those patients, I tell them pre and post-op, listen, we're going to work hard to get on top of your pain. We're not ignoring it, but it, it may take us a little more time than the average patient to figure out where the, the appropriate balance is. Um, I still try to stick to my strategy of continuing them on their baselines and then using the non-opioid uh, alternatives, you know, in a major way as, as our first sort of additive for post-operative pain control. Uh, I'll use, you know, PRN opioids as needed. And, you know, on the inpatient side, certainly these are patients with, when available, you know, trying to pull in your acute pain service to, for a little bit of help can be very beneficial. Uh, and on an outpatient front, similarly, I, I, I also communicate with whoever their outpatient provider is that's prescribing the medication um, for a lot of reasons, but also because especially the, the true chronic pain patient often has things like pain contracts, et cetera, that you can get into some complexity if there's another physician writing prescriptions, even if it's for perioperative pain. So that's where communication, I think, is very important, both with you and the patient and their doctor. So just we know who's kind of carrying the football, so to speak. Yeah, totally agree. Um, Dr. Brummett, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, I have a lot of thoughts, but I, I guess what I'll start by saying is I agree with everything here. And, and I'll go back and, you know, Dr. Offenberg asked the question of, of, of sort of setting that expectation, but also finding that sweet spot. I think this is a place where while meta-analysis will say, Ketamine, a single dose ketamine helps with post-op pain. Actually, there's a large RCT not in those meta-analyses that's going to blow it all away. For most people, a single dose of ketamine is not going to be helpful. However, I do believe when you're talking about the chronic opioid user, a ketamine infusion for inpatient surgery can be incredibly effective. And we now are able to do those on the floor. We got some help from folks at Thomas Jefferson. And I'm, I'm a big believer that ketamine, ketamine infusions are incredibly effective in, in, in inpatient management of a chronic opioid patient. I would also agree with Dr. Abraham that you don't necessarily need to escalate your, your, your dosing. And, and Mark Bickett from our group just published a paper really looking at statewide data for general gynecologic and vascular surgery showing that while chronic opioid users use more, it's actually not as much more as you would expect. And so I think setting that 
normal expectation of maybe I'm going to give a little more, or maybe I'm just going to give my same dose, but I'm going to be, I'm going to have a higher, I'm going to have a lower threshold for refill. I'm going to, I'm going to acknowledge this is a person who may need a refill. I'm going to be okay with that, but I'm not going to automatically overprescribe to everybody because I need, think they need two or three fold. We didn't really see that. I mean, you know, and some of that could be because what, what Dr. Offenberg mentioned, which is the fact that they're taking their home medications. And I think those things are true. We think at a statewide level, because I'm sure there's people listening to this podcast and say, well, I don't have an acute pain service, or I don't have somebody who's going to come, you know, this is ivory tower medicine. And so we really need to think about what does this look like in a scalable national model? And I think there's three things. And I think one is screening, for substance use disorders. So we don't do that yet, right? I think this is not just about asking people if they're using opioids. And I'm not just talking about opioids and heroin, but stimulants, um, alcohol. We've seen now in JAMA article last week, alcohol deaths up during the pandemic, right? So we really need to be thinking about screening for substance use disorder. We need to communicate um, with the patient and the provider. And then uh, we need to create a transition to care pathway. We really, we need to have a plan in place. And, uh, you know, Dr. Sternberg talked about reaching out to the PCP. Um, and, and I think that's a critical piece, right? Uh, uh, Pooja Lajasetti uh, published a paper in JGIM saying, showing that most people, 90% of the patients that are private with private insurance, national claims data had a usual prescriber, someone who prescribed month over month. That was who they were getting their opioids from. But most people don't go back to that usual prescriber within 30 days after surgery. And, and when they don't, there's more high-risk prescribing. And what I mean by that is higher daily doses, more overlapping prescriptions, and more prescriptions with benzodiazepines together. And so basically you're creating a bad situation that eventually the PCP is gonna, and it, the PCP ends up, whether they like it or not, holding the cards, right? Like they're, they're gonna have it, you're, you're gonna punt that patient back at some point. So I think engaging them early in an empathetic way, acknowledging it is the hardest job in medicine, being a primary care physician. But I think if you're, if you're genuine about wanting to help them and you engage them early, I think that's probably one of the most powerful things you can do to really give that person a smoother perioperative course. Thank you so much. I think that was a phenomenal discussion and response. Um, I want to conclude today by thanking all of our panelists for this really interesting and honestly enlightening discussion. I have heard a lot of information um, in the opioid space before, and I still found this conversation really interesting and learned a lot. Our goal today was to have a conversation that tackled some of the controversial and confusing aspects of reducing postoperative opioid prescribing. And I really hope that our audience learned as much as I did today. We will try to provide links to everything that we mentioned today on our website. And I know that everyone here on our panel is available for further questions or discussion uh, via email or Twitter. We're all there. So thank you again, everyone, for joining us and have a great day. <laughs>